ठीक है I want to praise God for uh, the occasion that I had last Sabbath of uh, watching the baptism of my grand, uh, one of my granddaughter. Praise God. And also I have another reason. This week I received a translation of a Romanian song in English done by Joel Orff. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, it's a very, uh, very happy song about uh, thanking God for everything. It's called Rejoice. Praise God for this. Is there anyone else? I try to do. I try to wait till the last person, <laughs> because I always have something I want to say, and that usually is about prayer. I drove up behind somebody at the at um, um, the courthouse this past week, and on the back of his of his car window, it said, "If you know somebody from military, thank them." And I thought, yes, of course. So much is going on in the government, and it's not all positive. So I thought, oh, there's somebody in the, in the truck. Oh, here's my chance. So I ran up, and I knocked on the, on the window. And I said, thank you. And he looked at me like, hmm. I said, well, you have that notice on the back of your car. And he said, Oh, yes. Oh, yes, that's right. And it didn't take me very long to find out that he was a Christian and that he loved Jesus. And he went to a different church, which all great, because I'm praying that all of the believers in the Boundary County will love each other, even though they don't go to different churches, that we love each other. And... Um, so, um, as we were talking, I said, "Let's pray for the, let's pray for Af Afghanistan," and um, and one of the things that I've been praying for is President Biden. I want him to know Jesus. I do. I want him to know Jesus. And when this happens, when we're sure of that, I'm praying that all the whole world will know, and they will hear. So in the meantime, we started praying for, for all the military in Afghanistan. And we were praying, this man and I, I didn't know him, but you know, with Christians, there's just a oneness. There's such a oneness of spirit. And we were praying away, and then this person came up beside me, a woman, and stood there. And listen, and then pretty soon she prayed, and and I thought, well, is where two or three are gathered together, God's in the midst. And so when we said Amen, I I said, oh, so you're a believer too? She said yes, 
and, and I said something to, to the gentleman there about her, and he said, she's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a fun thing. I usually have wonderful prayer times with people, even though I'm not expecting to do it. It's only a lot when God says, on your feet, Ginger, I want you to pray. Before we pray, I just wanted to share another story. Um, just uh, yesterday, I made an appointment to do uh, get a haircut. And uh, I happened to be talking to, uh, or getting my hair cut by uh, a, a lovely Buddhist um, woman who's uh, just a super kind and nice person. And, and we had an interesting conversation about religion. And uh, when we got to the end of our conversation, and I, um, I was at the front to, uh, to pull out my, my credit card and pay for it, De- debit card, don't, don't use credit cards, um, <laughs> um, I, I also pulled this out. Have you seen this? It says, you're invited. Just, let's just read it together. You're invited. Bonners Ferry, Seventh-day Adventist Church, Saturdays, 930 and 1045. And then on the other side, it, it's, it says, plan to visit this Saturday. And, and then it says service times and then a little let's connect, our Facebook page, our, our live stream, and, and then our website at the bottom. Isn't that a neat idea? I got this idea from a, a young man who attends here um, sometimes, and he, he came to me and he said, you know, there's this, this girl that I met who invited me to her church, and he, she gave me an invitation. Do we have an invitation that I can give to people? And I looked around at our desk, and I said, no, we don't. And I thought, well, we should have one of those. So I, I made business card size so that, that people like me who have wallets can, can have it in the wallet next to our, our debit cards, and uh, we can pull it out, and we can say, why don't you come to my church? And, you know, as we were talking, this young lady said, do, do all the people in your church um, subscribe to what you're talking about? Because it seemed kind of radical to her. And I said, yeah, actually, it's kind of the reason that we exist as a church, to tell people about who God really is. And she said, you know, I, I probably won't come, but you never know. So we can pray for Emma. Emma. Okay, so for those that are able, please kneel. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you have brought each of us safely to this place. We gladly surrender our lives to you in worship and praise. As we gather, we remember those who are not with us today. For those who are sick, we are asking for healing. We think of Don, Alice, Charlie, and Candy. We ask that you would be with them and bless them with healing. And for those away from us, we ask for 
your blessing to be on them. We invite your Holy Spirit to be, to move freely amongst us. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings, for the, the baptisms, for the, the vehicles that we search for. Lord, we ask that you would Come dwell in our hearts now. We ask now that you would be with the pastor as he brings us your word. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. We get to do something fun that we don't often get to do. Um, and and uh, just to, to, to throw this out there, it's a good thing to do this. Um, and so if, if we need to um, encourage um, young families to have more kids so that this can happen, that, that, that might not be a bad thing. But I'd like to invite um, Anna and Corneliu and Talia to come forward. And we're going to do a baby dedication. When we look at the dedications in the Bible, God actually commanded Israel to dedicate their children to him. In fact, their firstborn sons, they were supposed to buy back because God had given his life so that their children could live. And so in a way, the dedication is a thanksgiving to God. But there's also a couple other reasons that we dedicate. And you look at the story of Samuel and Samuel's mother, Hannah, brought him to the Lord to dedicate him. Or the story of Jesus and his parents, Mary and, and uh, Joseph, brought him to the temple to dedicate him. And, and he was probably just as excited for a moment. Well, when, when you look at why we dedicate, there's really two reasons. One of them is because you as parents, Corneliu and Anna, are dedicating yourselves to a task that God has gifted you with, a delightful and challenging task of raising this little girl to love and honor and follow Jesus. And the the second reason that we uh, do dedications is to give our children to God. And we recognize that God has plans for Talia. He has plans for her life that you probably don't know yet. And so we dedicate her to God's purposes and God's plans for her, and, and specifically to his saving grace in her life. So um, as we do this, I'm going to invite some people to come forward. Um, if you are a relative or a friend, or if you are one of the deaconesses in our congregation, could you please come forward And we're going to surround them, and I'm going to ask you guys to make a commitment today as we do this publicly. Um, Come on down toward um, just just here a little bit, okay? And we're going to surround you here, and I'm going to ask this of you. Today, we are are presenting Talia, and I'm going to... Is it okay if I hold you, Talia? Hi. Today, we are presenting Talia to, to you as the church and also to God. And Corneliu and Anna, do you commit by God's grace to help Talia to know God as her father 
to grow up in faith? Do you dedicate her and yourselves, as Scripture commands, to raise up a child in the way he should go? And do you promise to give her every advantage spiritually in your home, your, uh, your church, and, and in Christian education? Do you dedicate yourselves to Talia to share in, in all of her good times and her bad times and to, well, to love her always? We do. We do. Let's pray together. And, and draw in close. Put your hand on this little baby and, and these two precious parents. Lord, this morning we give you Talia. She's yours already. She's a gift from you, but we give her back to you because we know that you have plans for her. You have desires for her life and for her heart. And we give her to you to accomplish those things in her. We pray that that she would be like one of those arrows, well-aimed and sent to do your task. And we pray that you'd bless Anna with skill as a mother as she deals with tiredness and Um, all of the the challenges of her own character, um, trying to raise this little girl to love you. I pray you'd give her your spirit and power. And I pray you'd be with Cornelius. Uh, May he unlearn the bad habits of, uh, of men of the world and relearn what it really means to be a husband and a father and to honor you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I keep her? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Nope. This is a a special gift from, we'll give it to Cornelio. God bless you. From the church to you. God bless you guys. She was happy until I said that. Everything else is fine, but no, she's not going to be mine. That's not going to happen. Would you grab? We get a a privilege, the privilege, of singing a a special song. Do you have that mic? This song is called We Being Many. And we didn't necessarily plan it this way, but you'll notice in the end uh, a little phrase that goes like this. Who loves us as a mother loves her newborn child. Just 
scripture reading today is 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, and will be read by Tyler Frost. Yes, it'll be read by me. <laughs> Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Give the rest of the time to the pastor. The story I'm about to tell you is one influenced by history, definitely by scripture, and a bit by, we'll just call it sanctified imagination. The king had been so impressed with Daniel's uh, God and with Daniel's ability to interpret the dream and, well, to have, the, to know the dream that he had dream, dreamt, that he um, promised and, and eventually elevated Daniel uh, to a high position in his court. And then he, uh, because of Daniel's urging, um, also gave positions in the province of Babylon to each of the, th- the three friends that had stood with him that hold three years of their training. And so now their training years were ended and their assignments had begun. Hananiah, known as Shadrach now, um, was sent to Akkad as the assistant to the governor. Mishael, known as Meshach in Babylon, uh, he was assigned to be the sheriff of Uruk. And Azariah, now called Abednego, uh, was to be the treasurer of Sippar. And so They said their goodbyes, they wished each other well, they prayed with each other and with Daniel, and they went off to their tasks, likely not to see each other very often. They began to adapt to their roles, to the environment that they were in, uh, to to, uh, all the challenges that they faced, and each one determined in their hearts that what they were going to do, they were going to do well, and they were going to do it to God's glory and they were going to honor him in the spot that they, were, they had landed. As they were adapting and, and growing, and, and some of their roles were changing, um, Shadrach ended up taking over the role of governor after um, the governor passed away. And each one kind of adapted to their environment. And news began to filter back um, over the next couple years that 
there had, there had been an attempt on the king's life, an attempted assassination. And it was pretty clear because all the people that were known to be involved had been, had been executed, but um, two of them were from as far away as Damascus. One of them was right there in Babylon from uh, really close, and, and another one was from um, j- just uh, north of Babylon a little ways. And it started to, to be suggested that this wasn't just a few people that wanted the king dead, that there was an insurrection going on. The news had filtered down, but um, a little bit time passed and a decree ends up being per- announced in each of their, their cities. And all the top officials were going to be required to come to Babylon for a test of loyalty a test that would determine if they were on the king's side or not. And if they did not comply with their test of loyalty, they would be executed as though they were one of the assassins. In each of their roles, they began to assemble their caravans, um, coordinate with the, the officials in, the, in their area, and, and head towards Babylon. All the top officials had to come to the plain of Dura that was just outside the capital city. And the plain of Dura is a a special place, um, a place that has these uh, natural um, oil wells kind of bubbling up in this tarish gooeyness. And they had found out a long time ago that the stuff was pretty flammable. And so when Nebuchadnezzar, the builder king, decided that he wanted to build a, a palace or a, a hanging gardens or a whatever, he would go to the kilns that would make the, the, clay, um, uh, the clay bricks. He would go to the kilns in the the plain of Dura, and he would ask them um, to build me so many bricks or whatever. And on the back of each of the bricks was stamped his name. We can see them today, Nebuchadnezzar, um, the the king of the world. Very, very audacious um, statements on the back of these bricks. And And so he had these bricks made in the plain of Dura where the natural oil wells were and the kilns were for making these bricks. And he called them to the plain of Dura, a plain that was big enough that it could could have all of these various parties and their tents and whatnot. And he called them to this place because it was a place where he had had built a, well, an image. The interesting thing about this is this has been a little bit of time, maybe five years or so since the, the vision. And I think that they had forgotten you know, the Chaldeans and the wise men and the astrologers, the ones who were about to be killed when Daniel said, wait, I, let me ask my God. I think he can reveal the secret. And he did. And they all owed their life to Daniel and Daniel's God. But Daniel had a position that they coveted. And so even though they knew that they owed their life to him, they were scheming and conniving to try to get Daniel out of the picture and to get Daniel's friends out of the picture, and to get all of Israel out of the picture if they could. And so they, they suggested this loyalty test when the assassins came. Build an image like the one you saw in your dream. And, and Satan, in the back of Nebuchadnezzar's mind, was, was tweaking again, trying to get him to go a direction that maybe he shouldn't have gone. And Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten that the God of of Daniel, the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who sets up kings and takes them down, who puts nations into positions and removes them at his will, that 
that God had a plan for Nebuchadnezzar, and it was not for him and his kingdom to live forever. He, he forgot that that was the case. And he looked around at all the stuff he'd built and his pride began to swell inside of him. And, and he said, you know what? That's a good idea. I'm going to build that image, but it's not going to be made out of a bunch of different metals. It's going to be all gold because the kingdom of Babylon is an everlasting kingdom that will not ever end. Oh, they loved that idea. The Chaldeans thought that, that, that everything was just setting up nicely. And, and so he did. He built uh, a, f- uh, a platform out of bricks, and he, he, he built the, the, the metal works and the, and the wood to support it. And then he, he had the plates of gold um, uh, formed out of the gold in his treasuries, some of it maybe from the gold he brought from, from Jerusalem, who knows. And, and he, he, he attached these gold plates all around so that when you looked at it from a distance, um, it looked like it was just pure gold from top to bottom. Well, Abednego, I'm sorry, Meshach arrived first. The sheriffs were all told that they had to come and help be um, kind of coordinators for all these different caravans and where they would go. And so he's setting out stakes and uh, assigning spots to the various um, officials in different lands. And, and then Meshach came next, I'm sorry, Abednego came next. And, and Abednego's responsibility included making sure they had provisions and food and stuff for their caravan. And so he went first into the city of Babylon and came back with provisions. And then Shadrach came next, having been made governor, he had a bit of latitude. He could come just before things started. And, uh, and so each of them in their various places around the plain and on the way were thinking about this loyalty test. There is no loyalty test in Babylon or any ancient um, uh, nation that would have been disconnected from worship. You see, in Babylon, uh, the, uh, the, the kings considered themselves to be among the pantheon of gods. I think about it. When Israel thinks about God, they think about a creator God that exists irrespective of them, who's powerful and mighty and present and interested. But that's not what most of the world thought about gods. Gods were more powerful than me, but they kind of looked like me, and they had the same issues as me, and they had the same desires as me, right? And, and so, in, in that world, the king, who had more power than me, was thought to be among the gods. And when the king says, look, let's, um, let's celebrate the nation, and let's celebrate the fact that we've won all these, these wars, and we've captured all of these people, and we've conquered all these nations, and our empire is the largest the world has ever seen, the king is automatically saying, let's praise the gods who gave us victory. Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego all knew when they were on their caravan trip to Babylon, that they would be called to worship a false god. Uh, When they had been given a Babylonian name, a name that connected them to a false god, they shrugged their shoulders and said, you know what, it's not my ideal, but I live in this culture now. I'll work with it. When they had been given food that uh, was unhealthy for them, but was sacrificed to those gods, they said, we'd rather not. We'd rather something that's healthy and not connected to those gods. Thank you very much. And God gave them favor, and they didn't have to eat that food. But when it came to worship, 
there was absolutely no wiggle room in their minds. And so, standing there in their various spots, these three men, looking around at the other people in their caravan who had a certain amount of fear in their hearts and were absolutely going to bow down when the thing happened, a proclamation is made. And they, they heard this, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. And again, this issue of worship comes to their heart. And again, they settle it. Absolutely no, we will not worship this God that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so, it happens. At the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, except for three. The king's advisors, the ones who had suggested this statue and this form of loyalty test, they, they uh, you know how you sometimes do. You're supposed to have your, your hands folded and your head bowed and your eyes closed, but you're, you know, your eyes come open a little bit, and you look around a little bit. They had done that, and they were surveying the landscape, and they saw among these three little caravans from nearby cities, they saw three men standing tall when the whole plain had bowed with their faces to the dirt. Three men standing tall, and so they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue, when they hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre, the harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, that decree also states that those who refuse to obey me obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. The king flew into a rage. Bring them here, he says, angry, maybe forgetful of exactly who these men were. It had been a couple years. And for the first time, these three men stand together, having individually decided that they will worship no other gods but the God of creation and the God of heaven. They stand together now, united in their choice to defy the king but honor their God. Their hands are tied behind them tightly. The guards roughly lay their hands on them, pushing them towards the king. And the king recognizes them as they come close. And he knows them to be the most loyal of his subjects, the most um, talented of his administrators, and the, the most sincere, authentic, honest people that he knew. He knew that there was no way they could be connected to this assassination attempt, but he also knew that he had to make it absolutely clear that anybody who defied him could not live. And so he, he says to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? Is it true? I'll give you one more chance. If you only, I'll, I'll, I'll make the musicians play it again. And if you only bow down, then everything's going to be good. Trust me, I'd never give anybody else a second chance, but you guys are special. And they look at him with resolve, with a kind, 
confidence. And they, they say this, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar's pride rose in him again, and despite his, his fondness for these three men, he became irate. Pump up the heat, pour in the oil, make it as hot as it can be, white hot, perfectly hot, Any, melt the kiln if you need to, these guys are going in. The soldiers, as the, the, the fire got going, the soldiers begin to prepare the three men. They set them in, in, in a, a, a row, two on each, on this, uh, one on each side of, of each of the men. The fire is getting hot, and the three men are probably thinking about the promises God has made. Like in Isaiah 43, where it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Confidently trusting that this might be their martyrdom, but their God is capable of saving them through the fire. They knew they were going to be thrown into the fire, and so in their minds, they did not pray for deliverance. Instead, they prayed that God would be present with them, and they prayed that God would reveal His glory through them to the world around them. Fire is ready, the command is made, and those two guards at the front take the first man, and, and they rush him forward and throw him in, and unfortunately are severely burned in the process. The hot flames that had been pumped up so much scorched their faces and started their clothes on fire, and they tumbled away, and it was hopeless. Their lungs had been scorched by the smoke, and they, they had no hope. They died. The second set of guards did the same thing but tried to be more careful, and they too were harmed and, and, and uh, hurt by the flame so much that they ended up dying shortly afterwards. The third set threw the, the third man in, and, and they too came away from the, the furnace and perished as a result of their evil work. But it wasn't obvious that these men in the furnace had been harmed at all. In fact, as people looked around, they started to gasp and wonder, and the king from his throne got up and he looked closer and he saw that they were walking around. And he saw, well, it was amazing that these young men, their, their bonds had been melted off, but their clothes weren't damaged and they were fine, it seemed like. They were walking around like it was a normal day. And, and it wasn't that the fact that they were alive that was so astonishing, which it's astonishing enough. It's the fact that in the midst of those three men was one that shone brighter than the hottest flames in the fire. One whose hair was white as snow and whose face shone like the sun. One whose, whose legs looked like they were, were bronze that had just been taken out of the fire. It was glowing so much. And, 
And Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. Look, he shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. And then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Their hair hadn't been burned. Their clothes weren't singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. And if you've ever been in an oil fire, you know you do not escape even being near one without the smell of that stuff all over you. Nebuchadnezzar's heart had been melted by the presence of Jesus. He praised the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be burned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. There are many lessons that we could learn from this story. Many ideas that we could come to The first one would be the fact that these three men were faithful and obedient to God's command, a command which said, you must not make for yourself an idol or any kind of an image of anything. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, a God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. They knew God had said this, and they were faithful and obedient to God. We can learn from their example. First of all, not to make a mountain out of a molehill. Sometimes we live in culture and we think every aspect of our culture is horrible and we have to be completely different. Well, the Bible calls us to live in the world, but not be children of the world. We're children of God, but to live in the world. And so they took Babylonian names willingly. Maybe not their favorite, but willingly. They didn't oppose. And we too should not make mountains out of molehills. But when it comes to thus says the Lord, they were willing to give their life for obedience. Sometimes we make mountains into molehills and molehills into mountains. Let's keep it right. Let's make sure that what God says is important, is important in our lives. And when God doesn't speak directly on that subject, maybe a little more latitude. We can also see a parallel between this story and the the stories of prophecy that point to the end time movements of God. I mean, just just think about it. The language of this chapter is inescapable. Nebuchadnezzar calls the people... Um, And it says, peoples, nations, and languages to come and worship. From all of the the languages and peoples and nations in his kingdom, they all had to come to worship. And notice the focus is worship. It's impossible not to escape the idea of worship. And that if you look in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, 
you'll, you'll read this statement. It says, they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. This is worship that's happening. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Jesus is worthy of worship from all nations and languages and tribes and tongues. Or Revelation 14, 6, where it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven with an ever eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. And it says, the gospel needs to be proclaimed to where? Every nation and tribe and language and people. There's a close connection between the plane of Dura experience and the end of time worship issue. Will you worship the image or will you worship the God who created? That's what the issue was in, 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 Daniel's, or in uh, Babylon uh, on the plain of Dura. But then if you go to Revelation 13, 15, you'll find that it's the same thing. I, I think I messed up. That, would you mind, DJ, changing that, uh, that verse from Daniel 3.25 to Revelation 13.15? It should take just a second to do. I want to read this together. See, Nebuchadnezzar forced them to worship. He said, you have to worship in this way. And if you don't, then you're going to be killed. And the same thing happens at the end of time. It says, and it was allowed, this is the, 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 um, a, a beast power, a, a nation. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. And so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image to be killed, to be slain. See, the, the parallels are unmistakable. Daniel 3 is our experience when the, the time of trouble comes. The Bible says it's a time of trouble such as never has been. Now, some people would like to suggest that we won't go through that, that that experience won't be for the Christians that follow Jesus. It'll be just for everybody else. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says specifically that we go through the time of trouble. Jacob went through his time of trouble, and so will we. But what God, uh, and, and that time of trouble will be a life or death choice about worship. It's not too hard to connect these two experiences, Daniel's and, and the future of the Christian church. I think it's really important to recognize that God is the God who saves through the fire, through the water, not from the fire, but through the fire. Were, were, Nebuchadnezzar, were, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego afraid, maybe, of being thrown into the fire? I think there was some fear rising up. In, the, the adrenaline was pumping, I'm pretty sure. But when they got into the fire, were they hurt by it? No. I, I think sometimes we manufacture a bit more fear of the time of trouble than we need because God's promise is that He will save us through it. And, and notice, this is probably the most significant thing that we can notice about this, that, that this is a God, and it's not just the faithfulness of these three young men, the three Hebrew worthies, we call it. It's not just the faithfulness of these three young men, but it's the faithfulness of their God that makes the difference. See, their faithfulness does not save them from the fire, and neither will yours or mine but God's faithfulness will. 
at the beginning of, these trip, of their trip, I'm sure these three young men knew their lives were gone unless God preserved them. And they imagined scenarios where God could prevent them from going in, where God could blind the eyes of the officials so they don't see them standing. You know, some way God could save them through this trial. But they knew that they might be martyred. When the trial actually came, they stayed faithful, but God stayed more faithful. And it was by God's power that they were saved in a so miraculous of a way that, that the world knew. And Nebuchadnezzar had to praise God and proclaim it to the world like, uh, um, like uh, if President Biden um, uh, fell in love with Jesus and the truth from God's word. The world would hear something different um, than they are probably hearing now. Nebuchadnezzar told the world about the God because of what God had done, because of his faithfulness. And, and just take a, a little thought about this. God saved them by his presence. See, this isn't just the faithful God who waves his wand and wishes things to be good or who speaks something from a distance. This is the God who's in the fire with them. Where would you rather be? Would you rather be in a comfortable, easy chair, looking at, at, at the trouble from a distance and enjoying a nice meal? Or would you rather be in the middle of a fire with God? In our trial, God is present. And I think that's the most significant thing that we can learn from this story. Our circumstances have never mattered as much as the faithfulness of our God. Let's stand as we sing our closing hymn. Hymn number 508, Anywhere with Jesus. Never more to roam 
Anywhere with Jesus I have my home, sweet home. Anywhere, anywhere, fear I cannot know. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that you would strengthen our resolve like you did for those three young men as they traveled to the plain of Dura, that we would not worship anybody but you. And Lord, I pray that, that uh, as you asked of us, that we would love you and worship you with all our heart, with all our strength, and with all our mind. And Lord, as we do that, we want to be faithful but as we do that, we, we know that the only saving grace in our lives is that you are faithful. So please go with us. Be present in our lives, in our, the good times and in the trials that we face this week. And no matter what we face, we pray that you would be glorified as a result of our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.